The White House Correspondents' Dinner, yeah, that happened over the weekend. And it reminded us of two sad realities. One, elite gatherings of any kind have become nothing more than narcissist retreats with a camera. And two, our president is cognitively out to breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The show starts now. The annual White House Correspondents' Dinner has been a proud tradition since 1924, but just like every other star-studded televised event in the last 10-plus years, it has really become like a second Democratic National Convention, just with better-looking attendees, kinda. It was yet another opportunity for celebrities and elites to show both how liberal and important they are to themselves, like known cyber-bully Chrissy Teigen with her dress peasants there. Where can Joe get handlers like that? They really seem to be on top of their game, and I just gotta love it. But the evening wouldn't be complete without a leftist comedian making raunchy jokes about how much he hates Republicans, values, and, well, half the country. And this year was no different. Roy Wood Jr., who I guess is a Daily Show correspondent, was this year's pick. And while some of his jokes were half to three-quarters of the way funny, there was one that didn't land well because, well, it was disgustingly inappropriate. Take a listen. And also, speaking of drag queens, can, can we stop with the grooming stuff? Can you stop talking about that? Drag queens are not at a school to groom your kids. Stop it. And even if they were, most of them kids gonna get shot at school. It ain't no problem. You know, I'm aware liberals really want adult men to be able to dress up as women and shake their family jewels in the faces of children. But to bring up children being slaughtered and try to make that leap was distasteful even by liberal standards. But speaking of standards, I'm hoping the 81 million Americans who voted for this the first time around learned their lesson. Roll it. Jill, Kamala, Doug and I, and members of our administration are here to send a message to the country and quite frankly, to the world. The free press is a pillar, maybe the pillar, of free society, not the enemy. But the truth is, we really have a record to be proud of. Vaccinated the nation, transformed the economy, earned historic legislative victories and midterm results, but the job isn't finished. Roy, the podium is yours. I'm going to be fine with your jokes, but I'm not sure about dark branding. <laughs> a lot of ways, this dinner sums up my first two years in office. I'll talk for 10 minutes, take zero questions, and cheerfully walk away. We've been able to bring home dozens of hostages and wrongfully detainees, to wrongful detainees from Afghanistan, Burma, Haiti, Iran, Rwanda. Venezuela, across West Africa, around the world. Um, who the actual hell did we rescue from Aranda? And did we trade another merchant of death for him, her, they, them? You know, Aranda, what is Aranda? Is that like Wakanda or Narnia? Or is that just what they call the basement where they keep Joe? I don't know, but good Lord. And the Democrats really want us to believe they're excited about his reelection bid? Good luck with that, seriously. Good luck with Dark Brandon. Joining me now with his take on that and so much more is 1776 Project PAC Chairman Ryan Drzeski. Ryan, it's great to have you. Did you watch the White House Correspondents' Dinner? I know it's probably your favorite event of the year. 
I watched some of it. Uh, Joe Biden was actually pretty funny. Like, I mean, that one line about like going to sleep and not taking questions was actually pretty funny. Um, the host was not that funny. And I don't understand why there wasn't more humor directed at the press. I mean, there's a couple of things about Don Lemon, a couple of Tucker Carlson, but they really could have roast the press. They could have said, oh, here's the MSNBC lineup, for, you know, one angry black lady and four white liberals with no black neighbors. They could have talked about, you know, the evil tyrant who's power hungry and dreams of the day that Joe Biden died, a woman named Kamala Harris. They could have sat there and um, and roasted people on uh, on CNN and say, don't worry, no matter how many flood, there's still no one watching your audio, your, your show. Um, I think there was a lot to say and then say to Joe Biden, you, know, you would love tonight if you knew where you were. Yeah, no, exactly. I. Again, there were some jokes that he made that were funny, but they're also so true that that's what's shocking and concerning. Because, yes, I mean, that did really exemplify his presidency, but that's why we're in the state that we're in. And so I think all of us, we can laugh about it, but also it makes us want to cry inside, at least myself. Uh, And then tonight we've got the Met Gala. So the liberals, you know, they just love celebrating themselves. Probably no one's going (laughs) to really care that much about that freak show either. But I want to move on. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think the biggest the biggest shocking thing is, is that Joe Biden's big joke was, and his funniest joke was, I am unaccountable to you. You know it. I know it. And you don't care. And you will still not hold me accountable. And that, and it's funny is, you're right, it is funny because it is true. And they are not going to change anyway. Do you think anybody in that room is actually excited that that is supposedly their nominee for 2024. I'm not even sure that the best actors in the room could fake that. I don't think there's anybody that's got a lot of excitement for Joe Biden or even Kamala Harris. I really just don't think this is a big celebration. And I think if they're being honest, they know that it's really a train wreck and we're watching it happen. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. No one wants Joe Biden president, especially Democrats. But I mean, they feel like this is the man who won so he could win again. And it's just kind of like, who, if not him, who else? I mean, honestly, really, uh, there is a few people who could be rising stars, maybe Gretchen Whitmer, maybe Gavin Newsom, but not a whole lot. There ain't a lot of talent in that room, no matter how many times Cory Booker tries to pretend that he's a national candidate, he's not. And um, and I think that that's, I think they're waiting to sit there and see who could possibly be the future Democratic Party, but they're kind of straddled with him. And uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to see if if anyone gains any traction in the in the small Democratic primary that they have coming up. Yeah, well, again, I think that Democrats know that if they do, in fact, pick Joe as their nominee and he is reelected, they know that Kamala is going to be the president at some point within that term. And that's not me saying that anything inappropriate. It's just the facts of the matter that he's probably not going to survive through another presidency. And so if you vote for Joe Biden, you're essentially voting for Kamala. And I think the Democrats want her even less than they want Joe, which is why they put up Joe, because if they didn't put up Joe, they'd have to automatically put up Kamala because they've committed themselves to the diversity pick. But I want to get your take. I've had this theory for some time now. I'm going to stick to it. I think once Ron DeSantis announces, I think that they're going to be very worried if he starts to climb in the polls, if he somehow is able to overcome you know, the, the mega crowd and become what looks like our nominee. I think that they will throw Biden under the bus, and I think they will bring Gavin Newsom up. And I think that they'll pay Kamala off in some way, shape, or form to have her sail off into the sunset and bring Gavin in full force. I still think that's what's going to happen if Ron DeSantis does well in the primaries and leading up to them. 
I, so here's the thing. Even Trump's own polls show him losing to Joe Biden. And I think Democrats are very comfortable by the fact that they know they can beat Donald Trump. I mean, every poll is suggesting that he's going to lose basically all the states he lost in 2020 plus North Carolina. They are rooting openly for Donald Trump to be the presidential candidate. The only thing I can think of Donald, I mean, Ron DeSantis' six-week abortion ban bill is unpopular, but he is young, he is dynamic, he makes Florida a super safe Republican state, and he is not as alienating in the suburbs. I don't know if they would sit, I don't, but I don't see, like, the, here's the thing, the people that decide the Democratic primary in this country as of right now are Black older voters in the deep south that is the super tuesday states they've changed the primary cycle so older black voters have an even bigger say in this electorate cycle i don't think gavin newsom or anybody has more loyalty in that audience than joe biden and so i don't know unless joe biden you know knock on wood i'm not wishing this on but unless he died or was really too ill to do it I don't think that they would have a way to get rid of him because I don't think that older black voters would support, you know, Gavin Newsom, the guy who, you know, kind of looks like the, the main character from American Psycho. I just don't see how they're going to find that level of support. I would agree with you, but I think that Gavin Newsom panders so well. I mean, he's talking about reparations every other week at this yeah. point. He makes race a big issue. So I'm not going to count him out because I lived under his dictatorship for several years. So I think as as disgusting as I find him, I also know he's charismatic. So that does worry me a little bit. But again, people are not really voting for Joe or for Gavin. They're voting against Donald Trump or against Ron DeSantis. But I think there's a much better chance that they won't vote against Ron DeSantis because they want to give the man a chance. And I do think, and I want your thought on this, those older black voters, the older voters in general, I think that they would be maybe keen to switch over and vote for Ron DeSantis, even if they vote Democrat, maybe their whole lives. I think they would give that man a chance. I don't think he has turned off that group of people. So older black voters are the most loyal Democrats in the entire world. They're not going to change for any Republican. If Jesus Christ was running as a Republican or Martin Luther King Jr., they'd still vote Democrat. That's just how older black voters are. Younger black voters are more independent than older black voters are. But older voters in general were very turned off by Donald Trump and how he spoke and his mannerisms in how he spoke about women. Um, there's certainly a large people. Trump did not do that great with older voters. And older voters, by the way, are changing. The World War II generation has basically died out. Uh, silent generation is in their 80s right now. The baby boomers are in their they're in their 80s or 90s. The baby the baby boomers are in their 60s and 70s. This is a much different electorate. And the generation. Generation Z has just started voting. Now, Gen X has become more conservative over time. Millennials, despite the Financial Times article, which wasn't true, have become more conservative over time. Um, but nonetheless, you still have to bridge that gap, especially with people who find his personality um, you know, off-putting and the way he speaks, off-putting and find him as a not serious person. That is a huge culpability. And remember, in these giant swing states, in Nevada, in Arizona, in North Carolina, in Texas, there, the amount of people who have moved to these states since 2020 is larger than the win margin in many cases. So the electorate has completely changed. Not only have older voters died, newer ones come up, but some people have moved to those states and we don't really know who they are. A lot of them, even if they're like California Republicans or New York Republicans, they're probably a lot more moderate in terms of how they yep. appeal to people than, than you know maybe Southern Republicans who live there forever. Yeah, which is exactly why Ron DeSantis, I think, would do incredibly well in these states that are needed to win states.
That brings us to, you I mentioned agree. the abortion ban. We talked about this before it happened, and I agreed with you wholeheartedly, and I still do. However, I'm, I'm curious what your thought is on this. As much uproar as there was about the Roe v. Wade overturn, I haven't seen the national uproar about the abortion ban the same way that I've seen the uproar about the don't say gay Ron DeSantis bill. It just, it hasn't matched up. And I thought that this abortion issue would be more of a liability for Ron, but it doesn't seem like that is the biggest, I guess, L he's got in his column right now. It still continues to be the don't say gay. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that right now what Republicans need to do, especially if Ron DeSantis ran, one, admit two, two conservatives. Guess what? Even if we had 60 senators in the United States Senate, we're not getting a 15-week national abortion ban. Right. We're just not. It's not going to happen. Let's leave up to the states the way that it was probably supposed to be right before Roe v. Wade. Let's leave up to the states. Let them decide. Every state could be its own you know, uh, laboratory for democracy, and let's see where we go. What we should be talking about is not the children women may have in the future, it's the ones they do have now. The massive learning loss from COVID shutdowns, the economic opportunities that they need to be having in a new economy. All these things are real crime in urban cities and even in suburbs now. This is what they need to be focusing on. So I don't, I think the only way to really tackle it is not to sit there, I mean, and highlight it over and over again, acknowledge you passed it, say Floridians wanted it, whatever the case may be, Floridian Republicans wanted it, but it's not going to happen on a national stage. So let's talk about things that will be. Immigration, trade, let's talk about our foreign policy, let's talk about our economy, let's talk about inflation, let's talk about the children women really have today, not the ones they may or may not have in the future, but the ones they actually go to bed at night worrying about. I think that's a great message. I wonder about this whole Disney debacle now. Uh, conservatives like Nikki Haley last week, who is irrelevant and quite frankly, not a conservative, but she went after Ron DeSantis over the Disney thing. I mean, they're taking cheap shots at him and they're coming at him from the left, which I think is a really interesting strategy. It's like, oh, how dare Ron DeSantis take on Disney in the name of conservative values and principles? If that's going to be your biggest argument against Ron DeSantis and you want to be the conservative leader, I'm not so sure that lands. But how do you think this Disney lawsuit is going to play out? Do you think that he's gone too far with the culture war at this point? Does he run the risk of maybe turning off some of those independent voters by the perception of going after Disney, which most Americans probably don't have too much of a problem with Disney itself? Well, I mean, first of all, Nikki Haley makes Kamala Harris and Hillary Clinton look likable. I Agreed. mean, this woman, is, she will do anything for power. I think the problem is, is that the fight over Disney has changed so much over time. People forget what they're actually arguing about. The, the win for conservative at Disney was this. Disney promised they were going to hire an army of lobbyists for every culture war fight and go to Tallahassee and fight against the uh, abortion ban, the gun rights expansion, um, the expansion of the don't say gay bill, um, a, a fight against E-Verify. After DeSantis put his foot down, they didn't send a lobbyist over anything. The whole fight at this point is a land use contract. That's literally all they're fighting for. They're no, they completely surrender on every culture war battle there is. It's just over their current contract in the land use. So do I, I mean, it's a win, but it ultimately is going on for so long. People kind of forgot and it's getting lost in the nuance. I think at this point, I think the media would probably be best to move on, but they're ho ho hoping it gives DeSantis negative, negative connotations. 
but we should focus on the fact that it's a corny, uh, uh, cap, uh, crony capitalism and the fact that it's over a minor thing. And Disney really has surrendered on the culture war. Yeah, if you ask your average voter on the street, though, about the DeSantis versus Disney battle, they would probably tell you that DeSantis wants to keep gays out of Disney. That's what they would probably <laughs> tell you. Unfortunately, right. the same thing with the don't say gay, we're losing the messaging. So I think Ron DeSantis has to get out in front of that a little bit more and make sure that he's explaining. Last thing I want to say in the DeSantis world is the world tour that he's currently on. Now he's getting flack <laughs> for it. But again, if people are out there, because one of the criticisms I heard of DeSantis is that he has no foreign policy experience. You know, he served our country, but I guess that doesn't count. They're saying he doesn't have foreign policy experience. Well, now he's going on this, I guess, abbreviated world tour to say, hey, listen, I can engage with world leaders. Look at what I'm able to do. I don't see it as a negative. Florida's doing well. He's taking care of business in his state. But there are some that are also using that to attack him. When I say some, I mean other Republicans. What do you think about his tour? I mean, listen, here's the thing with other Republicans. There's essentially two candidates in this presidential race, Trump and DeSantis. Everyone else is vying for another job, and they're just there to run for president and take a few percentage points and some donor money. I think that the world tour thing has gone on a little long. I would like to – what I think DeSantis needs is an inspirational message for what he wants to do for America. The idea of making America Florida is not enough. You can't plant palm trees in Michigan. I think that you really need to speak to the worries and concerns of people and have an aspirational American message. The world tour is not bad, but I don't think it's doing as much for him as maybe it should be. I think that maybe he could have waited to do it after if he won the nomination. But um, but I think that right now, an American tour where he had an aspirational message for the entire country um, would be very beneficial. And I think the problem, the question I hear from Republicans all the time is, I don't know what he actually stands for outside of what he did for COVID. And that's good for the sake that it could, he gets a chance to really make a second, a first impression a second time. But it's been, it's, it's, it's negative for him because they, a lot of people don't have a lot, a big opinion of him. They like him, but it's not enough to sit there and overcome how they felt about Trump or that Trump, you know, was a good president or whatnot. So he needs to really sit there and attach a real national message, an inspirational message, an attainable message to the people then in the swing states, in the early primary states, and in the Midwest, and really get that going very, very soon. I agree with you. Last thing I want to talk to you about, because you wrote, <clears throat> excuse me, a very interesting article that I think the American people need to see about how Biden, and when I say Biden, I mean his handlers, are going to use NGOs with this border crisis situation, and it's going to be worse than we could have ever imagined, but the average American might not be aware of how they're going to manipulate and contort this thing. So I want you to explain to my audience what you see happening and why we should pay attention. So Title 42, which was the Trump era um, policy to sit there and push people back on the other side of the Mexico border, uh, migrants to get them back on the other side of the Mexico border very quickly is ending on May 11th. What Biden and his administration is doing is having overseas immigration facilities to sit there and bring people in where they can claim asylum overseas. It will be run by NGOs, non-government organizations. So it's not like the American embassy in Colombia or in uh, Nicaragua or something is going to sit there and be processing these people. They will be companies and they will be uh, nonprofits rather whose job it is, whose money requ requires them to sit there and actually bring people into the United States at 125000 a year right now. That's what Biden is hoping to sit there and bring in, much, much higher than the Trump numbers. So I think, so that's, that's the important thing. Now, they're all admitting 
that once Title 42 goes, there'll be a surge on the border. But what Biden's hoping to do is sit there and get more people processed this way overseas with these NGOs so that way it doesn't appear there is a massive border crisis, even though more are coming in the country. Exactly. It's, oh, we'll process them there. We'll bring them here. But then you won't see those photos that really only Fox News drones capture because they're only ones that really seem to give a damn of these people flooding in in mass numbers because that tends to maybe make the American people understand what a crisis this is. No, they'll just do it there. And then who knows, fly them in in the dead of night. You're exactly right. The border issue, whoever our nominee is, has to make that an issue and make immigration an issue the way Donald Trump was able to do in 2016. A lot of people voted on that. And I think that message is partly why he won that election. But Ryan, thank you for always being here and and shedding some light on the important issues with some logic. And uh, maybe next time I talk to you, we'll have a Ron DeSantis officially in the ring so they can all take a bite at him and it will be their actual competitor. Thanks so much for joining Thank me. Thank you, Tommy. Still ahead, nobody had an issue with the trans agenda until it started coming for children and real women. But I've got Blair White on deck and we're getting into it all. That's next. A Delaware County councilman is coming out as a transgender, as transgender and a woman of color. Delaware County Councilman Ryan Webb announced that he now identifies as an Indian American woman. Since that announcement, he's received some support, but a lot of backlash, many calling him childish, despicable, even calling for things like execution. In a statement Webb gave to ITMate, he says, quote, it is unfortunate that I cannot simply be given the same space and respect to explore my identity that so many of those targeting me demand for themselves. It's possible I may change my mind down the road. The process of identity exploration is complex, and oftentimes at the end of our personal journey, we end right back where we started. Webb goes on to tell IT Mate this is just his true, authentic self. Well, in a hypocritical yet completely expected plot twist, LGBTQ activists are demanding Ryan Webb resign, claiming he is mocking trans people. Uh, Okay, now do Leah Thomas, who pretends to be a woman to win trophies, or the new favorite, Dylan Mulvaney, who pretends to be a woman to make money and endorse women's products. You know, if the Rainbow Mafia wants to make a laughing stock out of women and do it under the guise of tolerance and exploration, then why the hell should the rest of us be precluded from doing the same? Joining me now with her take on it all is host of the Blair White Project, Blair White. Blair, it's great to have you. Hey, Tommy, you interviewed me many moons ago, so it's cool to talk again. You know, so much has changed. I think every week it changes a little more. I think that the, the oppression oppression totem pole just gets higher and higher and higher. But this is where we are today. And I want to jump right in with probably the topic that's been on most people's minds in the last, I guess it's been almost a month now, is the whole Dylan Mulvaney of it all. I really want to get your take. And of course, I know your tweets and I know your stance from that. But I want you to explain to my audience what you think of somebody like a Dylan Mulvaney. Do you think that Dylan Mulvaney is authentically somebody who believes in his mind that he is transgender or is this all a front and a farce to make money? So while it's impossible to get into the hearts or minds of other people, you know, don't know what's going on in that person's head, I personally don't believe it's actually a trans person for the simple fact that if you look at Dylan's history, Dylan is a trained trained actor, a theater kid, and what I believe is that Dylan has constructed a character that is good for the TikTok algorithm. Uh, If you look back at Dylan's earliest videos, Dylan tried on a bunch of different identities. This is the one that stuck. This is the one that got him to the White House. 
Um, and what's really unfortunate is that, you know, Dylan has now become the most visible trans person in the corporate press, but kind of sucks to be, you know, an actual trans person, have someone that you don't even think is trans representing you. Uh, to me, Dylan has constructed a character using the most offensive stereotypes about women and about trans people uh, and has used those to really leverage himself and get attention. So, you know, I think of all the people that I've met, you know, through my life, I've met trans people that have served in the army. I've met trans people that are lawyers and doctors and people that are actual participating members of society and don't go through life like Dylan. And so I think of all the people that would be more worthy of being on a Bud Light can. Uh, not that I drink Bud Light, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I talked to Caitlyn Jenner about this a lot. And I think that people like Dylan Mulvaney and others really are making a mockery of the actual LGBTQ movement in and of itself. Yeah. And the fact that so many can't see that and are not offended by it actually stuns yeah. me because this has become a profession for Dylan Mulvaney and others, a profession just like it is for Leah Thomas, where it's, you know, do they authentically feel this way? Do they generally have gender dysphoria? No, they found that this is a way that they can dress up and be an actor, but do it to me in the most demeaning way possible, not only to women, but as you mentioned, to actual transgender people. So this is why it's so frustrating. I had a friend of mine who's on the Democrat side, a good friend of the Kardashian family, text me over the weekend and say, I don't get why conservatives are okay with Caitlyn Jenner and not okay with Dylan Mulvaney. And I explained that exact thing to her. And I think that maybe there's somewhat of an understanding there. But when we go back to the agenda of this new LGBTQ movement, I want to know why you think this movement has become about transgender surgeries for minors and drag queens for children, because that seems to be the two biggest gripes that this new LGBTQ movement has on the agenda. Well, you know, it's really unfortunate to be a trans person that really doesn't recognize the trans community or the LGBT community at large anymore, at least on the ideological side. I get that there are individuals and I take every individual as they come. But when I look at the goals of activists, it's completely antithetical towards my goals and it's irreconcilable in terms of beliefs. So when I transitioned eight years ago, the idea that this was something for kids was absolutely not even a thing. Um, there was no one around me that I knew that was trans or transitioning that even considered that to be, you know, part of what should be happening or what we should be fighting for, right? And so that to me, I've been speaking out against children transitioning, child sex changes, surgeries that, you know, uh, permanently alter the bodies of children in the name of trans ideology for years before it was even a national conversation. So it's actually really horrifying to see how prevalent it's become, how common it's become, and how it's now, you know, there are people in the White House, including Joe Biden, of course, advocating for it. While we're looking at other countries in Europe that were sort of early, you know, uh, fighters for this issue and were transitioning children years before even we did in, in America, and they're reversing course. They're saying, you know what, we're seeing this have some, you know, bad outcomes. There's an interesting study that followed a bunch of gender dysphoric biological males from, I believe it was 2002 to uh, recent. And it showed that 88% of these children actually grew out of that gender dysphoria if they were given the opportunity to grow. And that actually goes right in line with what I believe, which is transition is something that should be reserved in extreme cases for people that have that condition. And it persists through their adult life when they're actually capable of consenting to these surgeries that do change your body forever. I don't think any sane person, whether you're trans, black, white, anything, thinks that children can consent to sterilizing themselves. And that's what happens when you take 
like uh, hormones and puberty blockers. You cannot have children. The idea that a 13 year old can have their mind made up on that front when they can't drive, they can't get a tattoo, they can't get a piercing. You know, you can't even rent a hotel room until your mid twenties in some states. Uh, there's a young detransitioner I know who is on the road speaking out against minors transitioning. And she has to have someone else book her hotels when she speaks because she's only 19 and she can't even book hotels in certain places. So it's really, um, really scary. And on the front of uh, drag shows for children, that's another thing, you know, drag has become very mainstream. And I think that because it's become, you know, drag races on MTV and there's drag conventions and it's kind of everywhere in every major city, there's this misconception that that's somehow child-friendly entertainment simply because it's mainstream now. And it really is not. Anyone who's ever been to a drag show knows that most of the time it's overly sexualized, inappropriate for kids. And so, you know, the idea that because I'm trans, I'm supposed to be on board with all of these things uh, is offensive to my sensibilities. Do you think that we're going to enter a time when people like yourself and, and others are able to correct this movement, to correct the radicalized nature of what this movement has become? Because I work with another organization, Gays Against Groomers, that are really trying to do the same thing. Like, hey, listen, we don't agree with this. We don't exist in a monolith. And maybe some course correction is possible. Or do you think it's only going to get worse from here? I think things will get worse before they get better, but I think it will have to correct itself. What's happening now is not working. Um, even if you just want to look at the fact that, you know, the LGBT community and activists, and I, I do make the distinction because oftentimes they are very different. Uh, activists claim that what they want is societal acceptance, that they just want people to accept and to love LGBT people. Well, if you're looking at the methods they're using, it's doing the opposite. LGBT acceptance rates are declining even among young people for the first time in almost a decade. And that's to be noted. So clearly their strategy isn't working. So I think it will correct course. I think the difference between gay people and trans people is first of all, there's a lot more gay people. So there's a lot more of them that are willing to speak out and form these great groups like Gays Against Groomers, like you mentioned. And with trans people, you know, traditionally <laughs> and what trans people used to be before this new activist wave, the goal was to sort of just blend into society and not make a lot of ruckus. And so that is hardwired in a lot of the more rational trans people. So they don't want to be out there speaking against things and, and you know, being on a podium like I am. So uh, I do hope that people <laughs> join and sort of correct course on this because at the end of the day, uh, you know, children are being harmed. And like I said, I don't care what identity you have, what group you are a part of. If we can't rally behind children, then all is lost. Just keep it away from children. That's all that, that most conservatives ask. I have a clip I want to play for you and get your take on it. Here is a mashup of Dylan Mulvaney and Brittany Griner talking oh, about uh, their favorite topic. Let's take a listen. Everyone has, everyone deserves the right to play. Everyone deserves the right to to come here, sit in these seats and feel safe and not feel um, like there's a threat or they can't be who they are or um, like, like it's just all eyes on them. Uh, so um, I think it's a crime, honestly, to, to separate um, someone for any reason. Like the articles written about me using he pronouns and calling me a man over and over again. And I, I feel like that should be illegal. I, I don't know. That's, that's just bad journalism. 
So Blair, there are people that purposefully misgender people and they do it to make a point. And then there's people who just quite frankly cannot keep up with the pronouns and the they, them, and the cis. There's a lot of straight people who don't even know what cis means. They don't know that they're cis. They don't right. understand it. There's so many definitions. Everything has become so wild at this point. But to have Brittany Griner sit there, who is a WNBA player, and say that there shouldn't be, uh, it should be a crime to keep biological men out of women's sports, and then Dilma saying it should be a crime to misgender somebody. What is your take on that? And how would you talk to either of those about what they're advocating for? Well, first of all, I would say to both of them, calm down because calling for people to be arrested for disagreeing with you, calling for, you know, you know, police to be involved, like just stop. Uh, you know, I think the idea, again, this is another thing I get a lot of heat for, but the idea that trans women should be involved in women's sports is 100% illogical. Um, it ignores so many biological realities. It's an insane that the trust the science side uh, has the opinion of, you know, biological males being involved. Like we've had this figured out years ago. Sex or sports have always been segregated by, segregated by sex. And it was for a reason, you know, trans women have larger bone mass, uh, larger muscle mass, uh, larger lungs, larger hearts. It's an entire litany of reasons why that's the case. Um, and in terms of Dylan Mulvaney, the idea that speech is being compelled by law is another thing that a lot of conservatives have an issue with. You know, I moved to Texas a few years ago and I've really gotten to know red state people in a way that I wasn't able to in California, even though I was still a Republican in California. Um, I'm surrounded by nothing but, like you said, straight, non-trans, uh, you know, conservative red state people. And yeah, they can't keep up. And guess what? Neither can I. <laughs> the, the list of pronouns, the list of rules that are changing every week. This is why I say that trans activists are actually the enemy of real trans people because their goals are antithetical. Trans people have, real trans people have the goal of integration into society, of respecting women, of respecting spaces. Trans activists have domination as their goal. You know, they want to be able to go into spaces that, that they should not be. They want to be able to dominate women's sports. Um, this cult and this worship of uh, identity is so much of a separate issue than just trans people. You know, the idea that Leah Thomas can identify as a woman and go in to women's locker rooms is disgusting. Uh, you know, there's horror stories that have come out from the Leah Thomas case of, you know, genitals being exposed in front of women. And the idea that that is remotely acceptable or cool all for the sake of not hurting Leah Thomas's feelings is the issue. So I think, Actually, I know because I've gotten to know so many people now, you know, that are in this part of the country that maybe trans is more of a foreign concept to them. Literally, no one would have an issue with trans people if there were not, you know, calls to mandate speech by by law and, you know, spaces being used that are inappropriate. So at the end of the day, it's about respect. You have to give respect to get respect. That's something I learned very early, early on as a trans person. And it's something that works. It's something that trans activists, though, refuse to do, which I find really upsetting. <laughs> Well, I'm so happy that there are people out there like yourself, like Caitlyn Jenner, that are speaking some common sense into this and reminding people, especially people that find the whole concept of transgenderism to be so unfamiliar to them, reminding them what it truly is, what it truly means to you, and respect is at the core of that. That's the same thing that Caitlyn Jenner has told me over and over again. So you're welcome in the conservative silent majority movement. We're glad to have you, and thank you for Thanks, using Tommy. your platform to spread so much logic where it is greatly needed. I appreciate you, Blair. Thank you. Have a nice day. Bye, you Tommy. as well. 
Coming up, an illegal immigrant murders five of his neighbors, execution style, but as the left will tell you, it was the gun's fault. My final thoughts are next. An illegal immigrant murders his neighbor is execution style, but the left still blames the gun that apparently went rogue all by itself. Oh, you know I have some final thoughts. Meet Francisco Oropesa, the Mexican national, a.k.a. illegal immigrant, who shot five of his neighbors, including an eight-year-old child in Texas over the weekend, reportedly over them asking him to stop firing his rifle in his yard after midnight. But I'm sure you'll just be shocked to know that not only is Francisco Oropesa an illegal alien with no legal right to be in Texas or the USA as a whole, but he's, wait for it, a criminal illegal alien who has been previously deported with multiple illegal reentries and God knows what else on his record. But the left wants you to believe this is just another incident wherein magical guns go berserk all on their own, so we must be better regulate them. Well, I'm just spitballing here, but perhaps instead of infringing on the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding Americans, we just, I don't know, keep illegal immigrants and especially felon illegal immigrants from doing whatever the hell they please and tap dancing all over our national sovereignty and basic laws. But maybe I'm just being silly, folks. Maybe Francisco Arpeza was just here illegally in search of the American dream, but his damn neighbors just weren't letting him live his best life in this country he has no right to be in. I bet that's it. And clearly, our wide open border does nothing but enrich our country. And as we know, Second Amendment rights for Americans, bad. Unlimited rights for illegals, good. Oh, and the border is definitely secure. The Democrats say so. It is my testimony that the border is secure. We have a secure border in that that is a priority for any nation, including ours and our administration. We have taken unprecedented action over the past year and a half to secure our border. And we have a process in place to manage migrants at the border. We're working to make sure it's safe and orderly and humane. The border is closed. We agree that uh, the border is secure. We're executing a comprehensive strategy to secure our borders. One of our highest priorities is to ensure that we have a secure border. And that is what we are doing. The border is secure. We now live in the upside down, folks. We live in a country where law-abiding citizens are told we should give up our rights and freedoms, but thugs, felons, and illegals should be allowed to run roughshod and do whatever the hell they please because Democrats need votes and some rhinos need cheap labor for their donors. And I don't care what the libs say about illegals committing fewer crimes than citizens. That's not a flex or an excuse or an accolade to celebrate. Our country is lawless already, we know. The last thing we need is to import more crime and lawlessness. And while most crimes are preventable, I for damn sure know that every act of violence and every crime committed by an illegal immigrant or their prodigy dreamer offspring was fully preventable. And guess what, friends? Next week on May 11th, it's about to get a whole hell of a lot worse. But the Democrats won't tell you that because they've come up with a workaround. They're going to start processing these people in Guatemala and Colombia so as to reduce the appearance of a large-scale border invasion. They'll process them there out of your sight and then usher them in here. It's still an invasion. It just won't look as obvious. And they'll call it refugee resettlement. I know a lot of you have turned a blind eye to the border and what's coming is about to smack you square in the face. And as for Francisco Apreza, I'm sure this story will be out of the headlines momentarily, given that every crime committed by an illegal or a trans seems to disappear like magic. 
But hey, those are just my final thoughts. Be sure to visit our OutKick YouTube channel, like and subscribe. From Nashville, God bless and take care.